Selena's mom, and I want to thank you for listening to Women of the Hour. Our show, I mean her show, is made possible by many, including the fine people at Blue Apron. Start eating restaurant-quality meals at home. You can do this by going to blueapron.com slash women and get your first three meals for free with free shipping. I am going to do that immediately when I finish reading this ad. Mom, you did so good! (laughs) Oh, come on. Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, creators of One Premium Mattress. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500. Casper mattresses cost $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full, $850 for a queen, and $950 for a king, which is what I require to sleep properly. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything you spent. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash Lena and using offer code Lena. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Women of the Hour. My name is Lena Dunham, and I have a confession to make. I am pro-choice. I'm a pro-choice woman. No, but seriously, I was raised by a mother for whom abortion rights were an incredibly important topic. From an early age, she taught my younger sibling and me to say uh, anti-choice instead of pro-life because she wanted to make sure we knew that everyone is pro-life. Some people are anti-choice. It can still be shocking to realize that we are fighting for the same rights that our mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers battled to give to us, but we are, and 2017 is going to be a really complicated year for women who want control over their own bodies. We're going to see increasing restrictions on our rights, and that's something that we have to be vigilant about. So this episode of Women of the Hour, it's not just about abortion. It's about giving women the right to choose in all aspects, whether they want to be mothers of 10 or mothers of none. It's about protecting their bodies, their ability to make decisions about their bodies, and their ability to pass that same right down to their daughters. It's not just about women. It's about their husbands. It's about their sons. It's about the people who love them and want to protect them. So this hour of Women of the Hour is a time to really delve into the topic of choice, and it's a safe space for you to think about these issues without being attacked, without having a battle at your dinner table, without being screamed as you try to walk into your Planned Parenthood. We're so thankful to be having a space to have this dialogue and for all the women who contributed. This show is brought to you by MailChimp. I'm one of the 14 million people who love MailChimp's easy email newsletter interface. We couldn't have started Lenny Letter without it. In terms of joys in my life, I'd rank it high above our current national craze for eating entire meals in one bowl, but below very small dogs. So, yeah, it's fairly high on the list. Matthew Munn is our beloved production designer on Girls, but more importantly, he is one of the 10 children of Rita Munn. Would you mind listing the names of your children from us, top to bottom? You know, Lena, I knew you were going to ask, so I wrote it down. Um, Margaret is 42, Matthew is 41, Rudy is 39, Michael's 37, Megan's 34, Martin's 32, Joseph is 30, Maria is 28, Madeline is 26, and Laura is 23. That is a good spread. 
Okay, um, my name is Rita Munn. I trained as a registered nurse and I worked in and around that most of my life. And then I'm a homemaker. That's about it. And I have 10 children. You have 10 children. Did you grow up in a world where having 10 children was something that was typical? Did you ever imagine you would have that many children? As a kid, what did you imagine motherhood would be for you? Well, I grew up in a Catholic community. So there were a lot of parents who had large families. There were six children in my family. And so I think of my contemporaries, I had the largest family. But large families weren't unusual to me. Did I start out thinking I wanted 10 children? Absolutely not. I don't know. I never felt that I ever had too many. I'm, it kind of surprises me when people think 10 children is a lot. <laughs> I don't think of it as a lot of children. 14 would be a lot. Well, I come from a community that was like a lot of people who didn't start having kids till that, you know, my parents' friends, a lot of them started at 40 or even 45 and just had one kid. And that, and so the idea of 10 kids, I mean, it's so beautiful. It sounds like a fairy tale. I wonder, was there ever a moment where you got pregnant and you went, holy crap, I cannot handle another one of these? Or did you always kind of foresee how they would fit into your life? Well, I'll tell you what. That's funny you should ask that, because there was one time where I felt that way. I was pregnant with, I forget who, one of the girls, the bottom three, and I was taking everybody to school, and I had three schools where I had to drop off everybody, and I think I was pregnant with Madeline, number nine, so I was dropping the children off, and the last school was the elementary school. Uh, No, it was the second to last, because the junior high was next. And I said to Martin, he was the kindergartner, I said, Martin, get out of the car. And he wasn't in the car. And I didn't know where he was. I thought, oh, my gosh. So Megan and uh, Michael were in the car, and they were getting out. And I said, get back in the car. We have to go find Martin. Oh, I was so scared. I had no idea where he was. So the whole way I was driving by retracing my steps to try. I thought maybe he fell out of the van somewhere along the way. Like, so many kids, somebody fell out. And the whole way I was retracing my steps to go back home to find him, he was only a little kindergartner. I was praying out loud, and I was saying, Dear Lord, I've been so greedy. Uh, I want children, and here I've, I can't even keep them all in the van. <laughs> Please forgive me for having so many children. Oh, I'm so sorry. I hope I find him. I'll never forgive myself. And I told the kids, look on the side of the road. He might have fallen out of the car. (laughs) I mean, I was that desperate. Oh, my God. When I got home, I ran into the house, and he wasn't in the house. And I was just crying, and I was so upset. And I knelt down in the driveway and was just sobbing. I felt I really have reached my limit because I'm losing them, and I don't even know where I've lost them. And he came out of the woods from across the street with our dog, Ginger, and his little lunchbox, and he saw me in the driveway crying. Oh, I threw my arms around him. I said, oh, Martin, I thought I'd lost you. And he said, yeah, I saw the van pull away. He He ran back upstairs to get something. And what I would do with the children in the morning is I would keep doing dishes or whatever, and I'd say, when everybody gets buckled up, honk the horn, and I'll come out and drive. So they honked the horn, but Martin got out and ran back inside, and I didn't see him go inside. And then he went upstairs and watched the van pull away out of the driveway. And his first thought was, well, it's all over. (laughs) They've left me. 
So I guess I'm on my own. He wasn't upset. He took his lunchbox and he was going to live in the woods. (laughs) So anyway, yes, there was a time when I felt like that. And did your husband ever, were you two always on the same page? Like, did your husband ever have a moment where he was like, this is, this Rita is too many children? Or was the... (laughs) The entire time was he Probably with you? Probably when I, when I thought Martin fell out of the van. <laughs> I, you know, that's a very interesting because Ronald is a totally different person from, my, from me. Um, he's an engineer. He's very measured uh, in his personality. He's very quiet. He's not shy. He's just very quiet. We never really talked about how many children we wanted. We just knew that we wanted to be parents And I can honestly tell you there was never a time when Ronald felt that it was too much. He is the most calm person I've ever met. Totally calm. That's amazing. And you need that. But what I wonder is, in a marriage, I know a lot, I hear lots of, you know, like New Yorkers complain, like, now we have kids and we can't find any time for our marriage. What do you do when you have 10 children and you still want to nurture your relationship with your partner? Ronald's the most important person in my life. And that relationship is tantamount to any other relationship. So we always had date night. That seems so trivial, date night. But I know that I can go to Ronald and I can just bear my soul. You know, the kids will say when they were little, if I was drowning and dad was drowning, who would you save first? And I said, well, your dad, obviously. So he could help me save the rest. That's so beautiful. I used to ask my mom all the time, and she would always just say, you, I'd let dad die. <laughs> she didn't mean that. <laughs> no, she said, I love him, but I would just save you first. No, I would always save Ronald first. You know, and sometimes I'll say to him, do you want out? Do you want to get a divorce? <laughs> and he'll say, you know, if something's really, really bad. And he yeah. laughs and says, no, where would I go? <laughs> <laughs> Where would I go? Where would I go? Good because I couldn't train anybody else. Rita, this is so beautiful. Thank you so much, and I just can't tell you how excited I am to finally meet the famous Rita Munn and to get to talk to her about her band of Munns. Thank you. Bye bye. Can I take these off? Yay! Thank God. That was weird. It was a lot. All right. The thought of being a woman in 2017's incipient political climate has been weighing heavily on many of our minds and fallopian tubes for the past few months. And when things look dark, as they often do, the easiest and most important way we can shed some light is by helping other women. Writer Alex Ronan has some tips and tricks on how you can support the reproductive rights of your friends, family, neighbors, and even enemies during these next four years. When it comes to volunteering, the hardest part will be picking where and how you spend your time. So let's start with the big players. First is Planned Parenthood, which has 650 health centers around the country and an action fund that defends reproductive rights. Basically, they're doing all the good all the time. The NAAF is the National Network of Abortion Funds, meaning they help women around the country who need an abortion but can't afford one. NARAL Pro-Choice is one of the most powerful advocacy groups in the U.S. Now is the country's largest feminist organization. You'll go to a lot of these websites, click on something that says ACT, only to be brought to a page with a big button that reads DONATE. Don't take this to mean that they don't want your time or your talent. It's just that donating is how a lot of people choose to engage. 
You'll probably also see online campaigns and petitions highlighted, but there's more to do than participate in a tweet storm. You could, for example, become a clinic escort. You do a brief training and then get to wear a neon vest and escort women past screaming anti-choice protesters with gruesome signs. Offering a kind word and comfort to a woman about to have a procedure that's easier if she's relaxed is huge. If you're interested, it's much easier to become a clinic escort with now than with Planned Parenthood, so try them first. If you're someone who loves to talk but hates to get out of bed, you could get trained for post-abortion counseling. Exhale does trainings in San Francisco, Backline does them twice a year in Bloomington, Indiana. AbortionCareNetwork.org has a running list of independent abortion providers. If there's one in your area, reach out directly to see if they need volunteer childcare, escorts, or help with fundraising. When you're looking for somewhere to volunteer, watch out for crisis pregnancy centers. These mimic clinics masquerade as real health centers, but instead of providing women with options, they try to force them to carry a pregnancy to term. If you're still in high school, you could organize to speak to the school board to petition for comprehensive sex ed or free condoms. You could get together with friends to host a bake sale or put together a zine for teens in your area that answers questions like, can I get plan B over the counter? And do I need parental consent for an abortion? Stay tuned for more volunteer recommendations around the country. Thank you, Alex. You'll hear more from this thoughtful blonde throughout the episode. Something I've thought about a lot is the fact that there is stigma around abortion. We all know that. There's cultural stigma. It's hard to put an abortion on network TV even though Norman Lear pulled it off and did it really well, but since then we've backslid. I always thought that I myself didn't stigmatize abortion. I'm an abortion rights activist. It's a huge part of who I am. But one day, when I was visiting a Planned Parenthood in Texas a few years ago, a young girl walked up to me and asked me if I'd like to be a part of her project in which women share their stories of abortions. I sort of jumped. I haven't had an abortion, I told her. I wanted to make it really clear to her that as much as I was going out and fighting for other women's options, I myself had never had an abortion. And I realized then that even I was carrying within myself stigma around this issue. Even I, the woman who cares as much as anybody about a woman's right to choose, felt it was important that people know that I was unblemished in this department. So many people I love, my mother, my best friends, have had to have abortions for all kinds of reasons. I feel so proud of them for their bravery, for their self-knowledge, and it was a really important moment for me then to realize that I had internalized some of what society was throwing at us, and I had to put it in the garbage. Now I can say that I still haven't had an abortion, but I wish I had. Somebody who has had an abortion is producer Liz Watson, who's here to talk about how, in a strange turn of events, her abortion brought her and her mother closer together. Hi, my name is Liz Watson, and I'm sitting here with my mom, Betsy Blackwell, and we're going to have just a light, cute talk about abortion. (laughs) Um, Hi, Mom. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I would say right now you're one of my best friends. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to say. Oh, thank you. You're one of my best friends, too. Aw, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true, because you're, like, one of the first people I call when I have like news to share like if I have something I need to chew out or like think through I can just call you and just think out loud at you for like 20 minutes and a lot of people in my life are not available to me in that way but I think that that's one of the things that's evolved in our relationship that we've really learned how to do that we were not always best friends well when you were born 
you came out, and my mom looked at you, and she just said, this one's going to be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert, she was right. Um, <laughs> things changed for us. Mm-hmm. I was 19. So this was the first guy I was, like, really in love with. Uh, my boyfriend at the time. It was in college, and he was, like, smart and handsome and just, like, like the kind of boyfriend you make for yourself in The Sims. Like, he wasn't a real person. <laughs> and um, we'd been having problems, and we'd had sex, and the condom had broke. And I got pregnant. And I told him, I didn't even tell him I was pregnant. I was like, there's a possibility. What are we going to do? And he was just like, goodbye. It's near my birthday, finals in college. And um, I didn't have any money. I was barely able to afford the pregnancy test. I literally remember going to the CVS with like a torn 20 because I'd overdrawn my checking account. And when I found out I was pregnant... I was like, I have to call mom and dad and get some money. Mm-hmm. And I was so embarrassed. And I was so, I was so scared. I was really, mm-hmm. really scared. And I literally made a, a, a little tent out of my blankets and crawled under it. And I called you. Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> um, I called you up. And you could tell something was wrong. And you said, what's wrong? And I'd always been so scared of being judged by you. I mean, you know, not perfect. And I just said, mommy... I'm so scared. I'm pregnant. And I was expecting you to be so mad because I said I'm going to need money for an abortion. (laughs) And the first thing you said, and I'll never forget this, was you don't have to borrow a cent. I will be on the next plane to hold your hand if you need me to be there. And the absolute relief I felt when you said that, um, it literally changed everything for us. Oh, wow. The other thing you said was, that was the other huge game changer, was I had the same thing happen to me when I was your age. I'd had an abortion at the same age. And my decision was compounded by the fact that my mother had had me at the same age that I was having an abortion. Yeah, you and grandmom and I all got pregnant at the same age. Yes. And that was huge. Do you remember that phone call? I do remember that phone call. What was your memory of that phone call like? I'd kept my own college abortion quiet. I think that in the South, you just didn't talk about abortion at all. I was in North Carolina at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we were all for abortion rights, but people who had abortions didn't talk about it. But... When I heard your pain, I knew that I had to let you know that not only had I had sex with your dad when I was young, which I I think you figured it. <laughs> I put I I was able to put two and two together, but, but that we had also had a um, a failure and had gotten pregnant. And we knew at the time we weren't ready to have children, although at some point it was a possibility. And I had had an abortion. But I wanted you to know how much I was in your court and how much I understood what 
you were going through, which is a time when you can feel very alone and you really need people there. Well, and because you also, I think every woman has this kind of crazed, psychotic thought of like, wait, do I keep it? Like, is this what I'm meant to do? And I didn't have a partner to talk me out of that. (laughs) And you, instead of, to your immense credit, instead of saying, well, have you thought about your options? You were immediately like, no. We'll either wire the money or I will be there on an airplane. (laughs) You're like, do not be ridiculous. When grandmom got pregnant, she dropped out of college, right? Well, she dropped out of college to get married. Mm -hmm. And then she got pregnant right after that. So she had already made a decision, a different kind of decision path than the one that I was on. I was determined that I was going to finish college. And you did, and you went to business school after. I did. You put yourself through business school. I did put myself through Mm -hmm. business school. Yeah, and you and dad, I mean, it was you two who had this abortion together, but I mean, later on, you got married and had two kids. Right. And it's an, it was an interesting crossroads for me because at the time, I, your dad and I were in a relationship, but I was still looking around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you little minx. I was. <laughs> and, you know, I just, I wasn't sure that he really was the one for me. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he was sure that I was the one for him. We were in a committed relationship, but not necessarily one that either of us thought was going to end up in marriage. But I think that in some ways the going through the abortion affirmed for both of us that we could work through something that was a hard decision and that we could approach it as equal partners and find a path through and support each other through it. And it formed an important cornerstone for us in our marriage long term. Can you imagine if I'd married the guy who knocked me up? No. <laughs> it would have been a disaster, an unmitigated disaster. You, you smelled a rat. You smelled a rat, and I was totally blinded by lust. <laughs> We've talked about this, that phone call a lot, and opening up to each other in that way, and it just changed everything for us. I feel like I can talk to you about anything, and I have talked to you about Everything. Everything. (laughs) I feel so privileged that we are now friends in the way that I had always hoped that we would be. Yeah, me too. Makes me very, very happy. Makes me happy too. I love you, Mommy. I love you. (laughs) Liz Watson produces this podcast and also a deep sense of calm and well-being in all who know her, particularly me. Liz, you literally just stuck this in my script, you crazy bitch. Wait, can we leave that in? Yeah, of course. (laughs) A big part of reproductive choice is birth control. But what does birth control actually uh, sound like? To me, it's pills being mashed out of foil packets. To some, it's, please, pull out now. Next up, our producer Barry Finkel takes us deep inside her IUD insertion. Warning, this segment might make your uterus turn a little. If medical stuff weirds you out, I'd skip the next two and a half minutes and the rest of my life. But if you're a freak like me, you're going to adore it. I'm hoping it's not as bad as you're yeah. making I, my it. Sister, you're feeling as like it's going to be. My sister it tends to be dramatic. and she One was... finger inside the vagina, okay? okay? That's me at age 22, lying back with my feet in the stirrups and a bright light right on my splayed legs. My doctor's administering an intrauterine device, or IUD. 
There are a few different brands of this birth control method, but basically it's small, T-shaped, either non-hormonal or low dosage, lasts a long time, and is low maintenance. Because intrauterine, yeah, that means it's inserted inside your uterus, where it stays untouched for years. Okay, I'm gonna have you flop your knees out to the side for me. Good, you're just gonna feel my hands down the outside, and you're gonna feel some pressure. I'm getting the Skyla, which is the smallest of the IUD options. It has a low dose of progestin and lasts up to three years. The insertion itself takes about 17 anesthesialist minutes, but you can break it down into these steps. It's just the speculum, okay? Mm -hmm. There's cleaning. Now I'm just cleaning with that betadine. Up until this point, it kind of just feels like a pap smear. But the next part? Not so much. Okay, Barry, cough for me. <laughs> and again, cough. <laughs> You're doing great. Just stabilizing the cervix. She's stabilizing the cervix so she can use an instrument to measure to the back of my uterus. One more time, cough. <laughs> Good job. You're doing great. That's the hardest part, okay? Slow breaths. So I already measured. We're almost done, okay? And then finally, there's the insertion itself. Okay, you're gonna feel that cramping again. Okay. I want you to count to 10 for me. One, two, Good. three, four, You can count a little faster. Five, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine, 10. Okay, it's done. It's done. Okay. Nice breath. She clips the excess strings that hang from the IUD, and it's over. And now, almost two years later, even though I still have that moment of, oh shit, I forgot to pack my birth control when I step onto a plane, I know it's always with me. You did it. You're done. I did Take it. Take a breath. <laughs> that was our brave producer, Barry Finkel, who recorded herself getting an IUD inserted and lived to tell the tale. Side note, she has not gotten pregnant since getting this IUD, so that's cool. You know what's always exciting for me to say? And now, a word from our sponsors. I didn't grow up thinking I was going to have sponsors, you guys. Dream big. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Do you think one of the things that deterred you from cooking more when we were children, and again, I know this is a sore spot because you're saying you assembled a lot, was the chopping? I think the chopping. I think that I was, I think I've been really waiting for for Blue Apron. I think this is like my, my kind of cooking. Because everybody always said they found chopping and slicing and dicing really relaxing, and that was always the part that seemed like really time consuming that I wanted to get through so I could get to the part where you throw it all together and cook it. So I think this might really, uh, really be great for me. Great work, Mom! Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash women. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. That's blueapron.com slash women. Blue Apron is a better way to cook. Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, creators of One Premium Mattress. For those of you who know me, you know that I get a lot of work done in my bed. I have an office. I have a couple of offices, to be totally frank. I am very office privileged, yet 
almost everything I do happens in my bed. I like to be there with a laptop, a phone, nine to 10 paper books, a good vat of snacking crackers, a coconut liqueur, the least popular flavor, the most popular flavor to me, like some kind of turkey jerky. And I'm doing it from a Casper. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm getting major business done from a Casper. I am making bank on my Casper. And I don't have the massive guilt and confusion that comes with spending thousands of dollars on a mattress and then not knowing why you did it. You should have a great mattress, especially considering you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Get $50 toward any mattress purchased by visiting www.casper.com slash Lena. And using offer code Lena, I really love having these URLs that just have my name in them. Let's check in with Alex Ronan for more advice on how to support your fellow women's reproductive health and rights. When you start looking for volunteer opportunities or even internships, it may seem like all the good stuff is in DC or New York. Totally not true. The National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health has field offices in Florida, Texas, and Virginia. Sister Song, a women of color reproductive justice initiative is based in the South. This is a long one, but bear with me. The Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center is in South Dakota, and they host incredible internships. I also really like an organization all above all, which focuses on lifting abortion bans. Right now, their website is highlighting action opportunities in Minnesota, Oregon, and West Virginia. But if you do live in one of these pro-choice oases, find a way to support women who travel there for abortions. Haven Coalition is an amazing organization in New York where you offer up your spare bedroom or couch, plus a meal or two, for a woman in for an abortion. Not having to pay for a hotel room can be the difference between being able to afford an abortion and not getting one at all. If you can give an evening once a month, great. Planned Parenthood hosts monthly volunteer nights. You can also become what the National Abortion Foundation calls a five-minute activist. Check out their website for tons of ideas and sign up for their Action for Choice alert emails. And if after all this, you're still not sure what to do, see if there's a reproductive health happy hour in your city. These monthly meetups over drinks are for pro-choicers and those working in the field of reproductive rights. You'll meet like-minded people with a host of ideas on how you can get involved on a local level. Now let's hand the mic over to Tessa Thompson for some sage advice in the world of reproduction. Here's this week's listener question. I am a staunchly child-free woman. Can you give me some good answers for people who give me inconsiderate and downright rude remarks about this? I was at a dinner party recently with a bunch of women. There were seven of us in Los Angeles, California, and we were all about that age where people tell you that your clock is ticking, I guess sort of 30-something-ish. And one of our friends just had a baby. She was talking about that experience. And one of my other friends just stood up. She, like, pounded on the table, stood up and said, I'm never having children. I just want to say that, and I don't want to hear any shit about it. Okay? (laughs) And it started this conversation, which was really refreshing for me because I'm the kind of person where personally – I'm that age where I'm supposed to be like a tick a talk and I don't feel that even mildly. And then I'm like, what's wrong with me? And then occasionally I'm like, oh my God, but if I don't have children soon, I will die alone and who will take care of me? And so then like sort of bi-monthly, I'll be like, you have to sit down with yourself and decide like, what's it going to be? And um, I don't think you do. For my friend Jacqueline, who stood up and said, I don't want any children and I don't want any shit about it. I think if you asked her, and she's maybe a better person to ask than me, she would say, A, there's already enough children in the world. 
who like don't have homes or do have homes that have shit ones. We're hugely overpopulated. We are not even sure if we can sustain life on this planet with the way that we treat it. And so that's one compelling reason why if you're not going to be a breeder, like we're the better for it. I think also Jacqueline would say, I make so many things, you know, she's a poet, she's an artist, like the world, the stuff that she gives to the world sort of in what she makes are her babies. And I would say that that's a totally valid way to live your life. And then thirdly, I think anyone that sort of questions you about that is like, how could you ever? That's something that's so deeply personal. And I I feel like as a child who's an accident, my parents are really happy to have me in the world. But I think there's something really beautiful about being, you know, a, a choice, about being able to really make that choice. And so if that isn't yours, own it. And I think by speaking about it freely as a woman without feeling any guilt, you set a lot of women free that feel the same way. And you set my heart free, Tessa Thompson. You really do. Mindy Swank was already a mother when her second pregnancy presented with serious complications, which left her fetus unviable and endangered her future fertility and possibly even her life. But the hospitals that were treating her followed Catholic ethical and religious directives, and they would not terminate her pregnancy, despite a recommendation from her physician that it was likely her safest option. I was very religious. I grew up in a church. We went to church three to five times every week. You know, I was very judgmental of people who, who were pro-choice and up until this incident, and it kind of it shook my whole worldview. And I didn't realize the kind of complications that could happen. Growing up in a church, we had always been taught, if the baby has a problem, your body will just miscarry it. And I thought that, oh, that's very simple. And I think a lot of people are being taught that. They don't realize, oh, you could die too. <laughs> they did an, another a level two ultrasound, the doctor had tears in his eyes as he was telling us everything that was wrong with our baby. And he explained to me that the, he saw a significant abnormal development in his brain, that there was water replacing where the hemispheres on each side of his brain should be, and that his brain just wasn't developing. The doctor at that point said, you know, you have two choices. You can either you know, wait it out, and in which case you'll probably get an infection within two weeks, and then in which case we'll have to induce the pregnancy anyway. Or you can have an induction now. And in my logical head, I said, well, why wait for an infection? Let's let's do this. Let's get it over with. This is a nightmare. I don't want to I don't want to live this anymore. Um, You know, they had mentioned that if I kept bleeding, that I could lose my uterus, that they would have to do a hysterectomy if they couldn't get the hemorrhaging to stop. Um, They said that they follow Catholic health care restrictions and they will only perform a therapeutic pregnancy termination when there is a grave imminent threat to the life of the mother, as determined by the treating obstetrician or gynecologist. I thought that this was a grave imminent threat, uh, but they actually wanted me to be knocking on death's door before they could do anything. But I went back several times bleeding and in pain and they would say, oh, you're not bleeding enough or you're, you know, you're not running a fever. Oh, I was a wreck. I cried constantly. I mean, just bawling all the time. I would have people from our church come up and tell me like, you know, when, once they knew I wanted a termination, they would tell me that I was a horrible person and that I should just trust God. And if that meant I died, I should just be happy with that and trust that he knows what he's doing. My mom was, she felt bad for me and what we were going through, but she was also of the opinion that I should just 
not want an abortion. I should trust God to do what he will and that things will turn out. And if he wanted me to die, well, that's just what God wanted. And I couldn't believe that that people would tell me you should just die. <laughs> um, that was I love this baby more than anyone else in the world. He's my baby. And I couldn't understand. I'm like, this baby is going to die anyway, <laughs> no matter what. And the way I saw it at the time, I was I wanted to choose death's timing, not death itself. Finally, at 27 weeks, I woke up one morning and I was just bleeding everywhere, soaking through pads left and right. And I had I was so put out with the way I've been treated at the hospital, you know, them telling me you're not bleeding enough. And so I brought all of the pads I had soaked that morning and I, I kind of shoved them in front of the nurse and I said, am I bleeding enough for you? <laughs> and they actually measured um, the pads. Like they, they took an empty dry pad and then they measured my pads to see, like, I mean, they were measuring to the gram to make sure that they could perform a termination without getting in trouble with their committees. <laughs> the procedure was just like, the worst induction you can imagine. Um, and when he came out, I thought he was dead because he, he wasn't moving. But he wasn't. He was actually alive. He had a heartbeat. He tried to breathe a few times. It was a hor the most horrible sound I've ever heard. Uh, I even tried to like block that out of my mind because I, I didn't want to think about my baby's not, he's trying to breathe and he's, he's not able to. All of my family came and my husband's family came and we just, we tried to treat him like like he was a normal baby, you know, we let everyone hold him that, that wanted to hold him. I know that um, several people in the family, they didn't, they didn't ask to hold him or they, they refused to because they said, you know, this is the only time you get to spend with him, you know, you hold him. You know, he turned blue for three hours and 18 minutes before he died. And I just thought this is, this is like the worst ever. You know, people would say, oh, at least you got to spend some time with him. And I kind of, I thought, what a ridiculous thing to say. He was trying to breathe and turning blue and he was suffering. I can say it's really awful, but I don't even think those were like adequate words to describe how it was. You, you know, with any baby that you lose, I think you're just going to have terrible, terrible amounts of grief. And it, it lasted. I mean, I still, you know, have days where I you know get real weepy. Um, but for the first year, it was just like really painful. And then on top of it, you know, I had all this excess anger from not being able to choose how to best take care of my child and that people thought they knew better than me about my body and whether or not I should have ch more children and lots of anger, lots of grief. I think it was just all compounded by the fact that I didn't have a choice. I became, <laughs> I became a lot more empathetic for other women and, and I kind of did a complete 180 and very pro-choice now. The first Sunday we went back to our church after he had died it, you know, it had been a, a month or so, and I kind of felt up to seeing people again. And I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the sermon was about why David and Bathsheba's baby died. And the pastor made a point of the baby died because of their sin. And that was the last time I ever went to that church. <laughs> you know, just dealing with the questions of like, why do people who say that they love God and that they're, you know, kind people and doing Jesus's work, why do they treat a woman like me so terribly? Um, I think all those factors just... You know, I kind of have sat with them and stewed with them. And to me, it's easier to believe that crap just happens and not that, you know, this has some divine plan. I I'm an atheist now. <laughs>
Choiceless features real stories of reproductive injustice and the laws, policies, and people beyond the headlines. Listen to it at rewire.news slash choiceless or by searching for Choiceless on iTunes. Alex Ronan, what other wisdom have you got for us, lady? Quick, before I take away your right to choose. A few years ago, I got trained to be an abortion doula, a role where you provide comfort and support to women before, during, and then immediately after their abortions. On my first day, I almost passed out twice and then slunk home completely humiliated. I berated myself for thinking that watching a lot of Grey's Anatomy had prepared me to wear scrubs and do something important. Unfortunately, I was still signed up for more shifts, so I had to go back. And that next time, armed with a mantra about failure and a big breakfast, I did it. And then I did it again and again and again. Working as an abortion doula was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my entire life. Plug, there are now programs in 10 cities. With any of these volunteer opportunities, if you think you can't do it, you know, if you're scared that anti-choice protesters will get under your skin or you'll be positively useless, give yourself a chance to succeed. You may be surprised by how much good you can do even when you're afraid. Thank you for these sweet candy apples of knowledge, Alex. I don't know about you, but they made me feel calmer about the future for at least a hot second. For a closer look into the beautiful mind of Alex Ronan, head to alexronan.com or follow her on Twitter at Alex L. Ronan. If you're a true woman of the hour who listens all the way to the end of the credits or a major Lenny reader, then our next guest's name should sound familiar. Jess Gross is Lenny's editor-in-chief, and I am so pumped to have her on the show. Don't worry, there is a pun in there, and you'll get it very soon. Spoiler alert, it has to do with breast milk and pumping your breast milk. I'm Jessica Gross, and I am going to talk about why I don't breastfeed my younger daughter. My first pregnancy was an unmitigated disaster. Well, I shouldn't say that because I came out with a healthy baby at the end, but I got incredibly morning sick, borderline hyperemesis gravidarum, which means you lose about 5% of your body weight because you're throwing up so much. I got really depressed and really, really anxious, and I didn't anticipate any of that. Oh, and I got terrible acne. That's the other thing. My entire body just revolted. It was like, I don't care for this. Why are you doing this to me? It was a traumatizing experience. That perhaps sounds melodramatic, but it was an incredibly hard and scary time. So that was the experience I was coming to breastfeeding with. I could never properly get her to latch. I was not sleeping at all. I was getting really, really anxious, which was sort of a repeat of my early pregnancy. And I remember calling this sainted, nose-ringed, beclogged lactation consultant and crying on the phone with her. And she said, this is not about torturing yourself or your baby. This is about feeding your baby. So she basically gave me permission to formula feed. My daughter, who's now almost four, does not seem to have any ill effects from it, although she maybe will become a werewolf. When I got pregnant with my second child, about 20 weeks in, I started getting 
really anxious about breastfeeding again, about failing at it, about not adequately nourishing my child because she wouldn't be getting the food. And I spoke to a therapist about it, and she was like, what if you just took it off the table? What if you just didn't try from the beginning because you know what? Your kid's going to be fine either way. And that was tremendously, to use a cliche word, empowering for me. There's a lot of cultural pressure that is saying, you know, breast is best. It is so much better than formula that you are doing your, your, your child and your family such a tremendous disservice for not trying. I just decided that I wasn't going to try from the beginning because it was not worth the agitation and the fear and worrying about those early days of bonding with my second child. Because honestly, I feel like struggling to breastfeed my older daughter made it harder to bond with her because at the very beginning, because I was so scared of her not thriving. I will say that it's not a decision that I made without guilt. I live in Brooklyn, which is sort of the epicenter of natural parenting and sort of pressure to exclusively breastfeed for a long time. And so there have been times where, for instance, I'm taking my older daughter to a birthday party and I have to bring the baby and I know I'm going to be surrounded by other parents. And I am scared to take out the bottle of formula because I'm afraid someone's going to say something nasty to me. Breastfeeding is really an issue of bodily autonomy, and I think it is a crime to make women feel shitty about the choices that they are making with knowledge of their own bodies. I mean, nobody knows what it's like to be in my own body except for me, and that anyone would feel that they have the authority who's not a medical professional who knows me intimately to give me advice or tell me what's the right thing to do to my body is offensive. Life is about making decisions that are difficult, but figuring out ones that will work for you and your family. And so for that, I'm glad and it was right for us. And I'm glad that formula exists. Beloved Jess Gross, if there's ever a band of Brooklyn mamas and Uggs trying to rough you up, give me a call and I will kick them right in the tits. This past May, the Planned Parenthood Association of Utah threw a Roe v. Wade anniversary party, where women came together and shared their abortion experiences live on stage. Who do I contact to turn this into a federal holiday? I already have like a million greeting card ideas. For example... Congrats, you chose your own happiness. Or, I know you're depressed right now, but please trust that it's hormonal. So while we all fantasize over what our Roe v. Wade party would look like, let's listen to one of the stories told that night. Here's Kara Goldney. It is the weekend before Christmas, and I find myself at the Walmart pharmacy waiting for my painkillers and my antibiotics. I just had my first surgical abortion procedure, and I'm standing in line And I look very awkward. I'm in these huge sweats. I'm cramping, and I'm just, like, kind of hunched over. And the people in front of me are vigorously trying to buy their SlimFast. And I'm just like, please, just let me just hurry up. I need my meds. Like, I'm not feeling well. And in the midst of my pity party, I was with my mother at the time. And she leans in with her heavy Venezuelan accent and goes, just remember, we will never tell anybody that we did this. And I was just like, I know, you've told me this five times. 
And if you guys have seen the show Modern Family, <laughs> Sofia Vergara's character is my mother to a T. My mother is Gloria. <laughs> yeah. But she's also very LDS. <laughs> so not only did she always put the fear of God in me, but she also was very superstitious. So she believed in black magic. So I believe that anything that I did, any sin that I would commit, not only was I going to be damned to hell, but I would have bad luck for the rest of my life. And um, as I'm sitting there mortified, thinking that, wow, there's going to be four people on this planet that know that I had an abortion. Myself, my mother, and the two pharmacists at Walmart. <laughs> it's my turn to hand them my prescription, and I'm just totally ashamed. I put my head down and I give them my prescription. I sit down and I start remembering everything that brought me to that point. Um, growing up, I was really awkward. I had a back brace. I wasn't very cute. I was kind of, I couldn't talk to anybody and I just loved reading and I loved music. So when my mom sat me down in my back brace to talk about sex, I was completely mortified. And not only that, she couldn't say the word sex. She called it chaka chaka. <laughs> Which was the Spanish verbiage of boom, boom, I think. I don't know what she was, where she was going with that. So I could never really talk about sex up until my late 20s. And so eventually, I wasn't that awkward anymore. I kind of blossomed, but I, was still, I still couldn't talk to guys. And when I graduated high school, I met this guy who was just beautiful. He was like the hot guy from all the movies, and he finally learned that the nerdy girl was cool and like kind of cute. And um, so we started dating and it was amazing. Um, we were so infatuated with each other. And I just remember being like, that's my soulmate, that's my man, and we're gonna be together forever. So of course, I had chaka chaka for the first time and I was totally not ashamed. As quickly and as serious as we got, our infatuation with each other took a turn for the worse really quickly as well. Um, he started becoming really paranoid with everything that I was doing. I'd be in class, and I'd have 20 missed phone calls from him and over a million texts ranging in every different emotion thought possible. It went from, hey, why aren't you answering me? Um, you're sleeping with somebody. You're such a slut. Babe, I love you so much. Please just answer my call. I want to be with you forever. This is the first time I've really been in a relationship, so I just thought, you know what, we're going to work through this. And on, I don't know, I don't know. And on one of those occasions, he surprised me at my home and picked me up because he didn't think I was really there. And I lived with my mother, my brother, and my grandmother. And I was like, you totally crossed the line. You freaked them out. And we're driving around and arguing. And he just stops the car abruptly and goes, so you're going to end things with me? And I'm trying to be brave and stand up for myself. And as he's saying that, the hairs on my neck and my arms kind of stand up. And before I can finish saying yes, he totally backhands me and breaks my nose. And all I remember in that moment was just a pop and a flash of white. And the next thing I knew, we were still driving around. And I was kind of in shock because he's driving and he's just sobbing and begging for my forgiveness. And I'm like, what is even going on? And I just feel my shirt is really warm. And I look down and I just have blood everywhere. I end up cleaning up and I go home. And then next morning I wake up 
it's pretty obvious that my nose is broken. My, below my eyes, it's completely gray, yellow, and green. My lip is busted. I'm just, you know, swollen. And my family knows exactly what happened. The next few days, I start getting really sick. And I had broken up with him. I was like, I'm, I'm totally done with that guy. And um, I take a pregnancy test a few days later. And um, just to ease my mind, I'm like, I'm totally not pregnant. I just need, I just need that peace of mind. And I was pregnant. And that was just icing on the cake for me. I was totally heartbroken, trying to get over this guy that wasn't good for me. And on top of that, I was pregnant. Um, I was having sex, and I didn't even really know what I was doing with my body. I didn't understand what I was doing, but I was having sex. And I remember just not wanting to even deal with it. I just put that aside, and I was like, you know what? I'm either going to have the baby or I'm not. I'm just going to let things go because I can't emotionally handle this right now. And I remember going home a few days after that I found out I was pregnant and I was just laying in bed and all I had the energy to do was just stare at the ceiling. And I don't know how long I had been in my room and I don't know how long my mother had been in my room, but she was sitting next to me and she grabbed my hand and she just looked at me and she said very calmly, Kara, I know that you're pregnant. You are my daughter and I hurt when you hurt, and I love you because I know you. And I just kind of looked at her, and I was completely dumbfounded. Like, I haven't told anybody that I'm pregnant, and I didn't take my test at home. How is it possible that she even knows? So um, anyway, um, I got really upset with her. I left the house. I ended up telling um, that guy that I was pregnant, and he didn't take it very well. He ended up punching me in the stomach and saying that he didn't want to have my baby anyway. So I went home, um, and my mother, with one look at me, knew that I, what was going to happen. So we ended up going to get an abortion. And thanks to my mother, she gave me a voice when I didn't have a voice. Thanks to the amazing clinic staff that made me feel human for the first time in the six months since I had started seeing, seeing that guy. Um, I'll never be more grateful for anything in my entire life. And now I work at Planned Parenthood, and I've never been happier. And because of my abortion, I no longer have any connection to him anymore. Thank you. That was Kara Galtney, originally recorded at Planned Parenthood Association of Utah's Roe v. Wade celebration by Lara Jones of 90.9 FM KRCL. Hot station. This podcast was produced by Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. Specifically, it was made intricately like a crocheted wall hanging by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Liz Watson, Emily Becker, Barry Finkel, and Gabrielle Lewis. Special thanks to Lenny Editor-in-Chief Jess Gross, who currently has two daughters under four and still manages to keep me from getting in trouble on the internet most of the time. Special thanks to Henry Malofsky, Max Linsky, Ben Cooley, and my dogs, Lammy Antonoff Dunham, Karen Domango, and Susan Simmons. Our music is by Andrew Dost. Isn't he, like, so depressing? Thanks, as always, to MailChimp for sponsoring the show. Thanks for listening. Back soon with more stories from Women of the Hour. Sorry we don't have more celebrities. Just kidding. Celebrities are awful.
Thanks again to Casper for sponsoring us today. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named the Casper one of the best inventions of 2015. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. You shouldn't have to sleep in a mattress store for 100 nights to try to figure out what you want. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com lena and using offer code lena. Today's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Some of the meals available in November. Pan-seared chicken with roasted fall vegetables and butter caper sauce. That sounds good to me. Lemongrass roasted pork with Romanesco cauliflower and coconut rice. Yeah. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash women. That's blueapron.com slash women. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. 